This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Samuel Schindler, Associate Professor at the Center for Science Studies at Aarhus University in Denmark. His new book, Theoretical Virtues in Science, Uncovering Reality Through Theory, is just out from Cambridge University Press. A fundamental problem in science and in philosophy of science is that of theory choice. Scientists propose theories to explain data, and it's usually the case that more than one theory can do a job of explaining the same data. That's the basis of many controversies within science. But when two scientific theories can both explain the same data or are equally empirically adequate, what criteria do scientists use to choose between them? What makes makes one better than the other and gain more adherence within the relevant scientific community, even beyond empirical adequacy? And given that even very popular scientific theories can turn out to be wrong, how are these criteria for theory choice related to truth? Do scientists even aim at true theories, as realists hold, or as anti-realists hold, do they just care about the fact that the theories can explain what's observed, and whether they're true or not is really not the issue? In his new book, Schindler lays out an extended case for the realist position, based on a close critical look at the main virtues that scientific theories are thought to aim for besides empirical adequacy, such as simplicity, kind of coherence or non-ad hocness, explanatory scope, and fruitfulness, right? Especially in in the sense of providing the means to make novel, successful predictions. There are others, um, but on, on Schindler's view, all of these extra empirical virtues are what he calls truth conducive or epistemic. That is, they're not just merely pragmatic means that make a theory easier to use. So for example, a simpler theory is also supposed to be more likely to be true. And so if that's the case, then scientists are epistemically justified in choosing a simpler theory over an empirically adequate but more complicated rival. So the book is an excellent discussion of the theoretical virtues themselves, but also their roles in actual theory choices and their role in the anti-realist-realist debate about the nature of scientific theory and scientific commitments. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, hello, Samuel Schindler. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Um, it's great to have you here and talk about your new book. Yes, thanks for having me. Before we before we get into the book itself, I'd like to start by getting giving re, uh, our listeners a little bit of information about you know how you came to philosophy and and your interest in in philosophy of science and in particular um, how you came to write this book. All right, um, yeah. So I think my interest actually um, was in philosophy, in particular philosophy, history and philosophy of science. Uh, those um, always kind of went together for me. Uh, um, was sparked by Thomas Kuhn's book, uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which I read as a 19-year-old, um, and that really had an effect on me. And then 
but I was also at the, at the time interested in, um, in yeah, reading popular neuroscience and uh, philosophical uh, yeah, uh, treatments of, 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 of neuroscientific results. And then I uh, decided to, to study cognitive science, um, did a bachelor in that. Um, but then I kind of rediscovered uh, my my, my um, interest in history and philosophy of science uh, by taking some courses in the, in the philosophy department there. Um, and uh, then I knew this is you know this is what I wanted to do. Um, um, and I also spent a year in Montreal uh, in Canada at, at McGill University, and had the, the luck to um, sit in some lectures by Mario Bunge. Um, uh, so several philosophy of science um, um, lectures I attended with him, and um, they just yeah, affirmed me in, in my uh, in my plan. And then I studied um, studied history and philosophy of science as a, as a master's degree in Leeds, um, right after after Canada basically, um, and then did a PhD with uh, Stephen French, um, who's known as a, as a structural realist. So that's that's where my interest in the realism. Uh, debate comes from yeah um so the book is you know it's a it's an extended uh, i think of it as an extended defense of of realism about scientific theories um and that as you nicely note in the very in the introduction to the book philosophy of science has in recent years become you know, somewhat particularized in terms of, you know, people who do philosophy of physics, people who do philosophy of biology, you know, all these different sub areas, um, but that th there is still a need for, and I think this is absolutely true, a need for more general philosophy of science about you know, science as a discipline, scientific theories in general, um, and the idea of, of course, of, of you know, how we should understand the relationship between theories and uh and the world right and and so you you're you firmly sort of put yourself in this uh more traditional you might say camp of addressing a a fundamental problem sort of across the sciences right um so one one of the questions that came up that that you address kind of at the end of the book but it, it might be worthwhile to say a little something about it at the beginning um is just this idea of you know uh, how do you distinguish, say, a scientific theory from a th from some sort of uh, uh, you know proposal that doesn't count as a, as a scientific theory? Um, you know, so before you even get to the question of being a realist about a scientific theory, uh, how do you, how do you place yourself in the debate about what what is what is called the demarcation problem of di distinguishing a science or a scientific theory, to be more specific, from something that's not scientific. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting that you, that you start with that question. <laughs> um, so as I put the, I put that in the epilogue because uh, I think I think um, these these questions, the, the two questions, are so, so uh, uh, you know, what demarcates science from non-science or pseudoscience, and the question. Uh, what is a good or um, not so good scientific theory? These are slightly in, 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 independent questions, but um, it's yeah. Uh, I think it's nevertheless an important question, uh, interesting question. Uh, I don't pretend to have an answer to, to to the question. I don't pretend to have a solution. But uh, uh, what I do in the book is um, I um, I try to to understand what would be required for a good solution of the problem. Um, and it's been uh, very popular recently uh, to think of the demarcation problem or um, um, of, of, of describing the sciences in terms of uh, Wittgenstein's idea of family resemblance. Um, so there's this widespread belief in the um, philosophy of science community. And I mean, it has some plausibility, of course, that uh, this, the sciences are extremely diverse and different. Um, and there's not really, um, you know, one thing you can say about them all, uh, let alone provide necessary or sufficient conditions, uh, you know, that would delimitate um, the, the the science kind. Um, and I think I think this is, you know, using the Wittgensteinian um, concept. So um, so basically, um, the idea that you know the sciences form a family resemblance, so there are similarities between them, but there's there's nothing that really 
um, you know, that they all share. I, th I think that faces uh, some difficulties and, and that concept is often used um, maybe in a not very reflective way. Um, and th there's some there's some important criticisms that have been made um, of the concepts uh, more generally, which I, um, which I mentioned in the epilogue. Uh, so one is the, the, the well-known um, problem, of course, of um, wide, wide open texture. Um, so if anything is uh, similar to anything else, um, uh, as we know from, from Goodman very, at the very least, um, and we use similarity to, um, you know, to, to, uh, um, um, to individuate the sciences, then it's hard to, to say, you know, where we should draw the line if, if similarity is all, all, all we can go by. Um, but there's also, I think, a positive um, problem. So uh, even if you have similarity, that that might not be enough, um, you know, for an individuation. Uh, so, for example, if um, you know, I let's say I have protruding ears. That's that's my example in the epilogue. Um, and uh, you know my similarity with Barack Obama having uh, protruding ears—that's that's not sufficient, right, for us to to, to form a family. And so the so, so the more is required than that. Um, so um, and and then in this case, of course, it would be um, hered hereditary um, um, relations that you know that that that, that justified um, our use of of these of these uh, similarities in this case. Another problem. Um, with um, and that's that's related with using family resemblance as a as a concept uh, when it comes to the demarcation problem is that um, what we want is we want some normativity and uh, if um, we have such meager grounds for in and exclusion on the family resemblance con resemblance concept concept then um, that seems pretty hopeless uh, so we want to say that you for example we we don't uh, want to teach. Create uh, creationism in, in in our schools, for example, because it's not a good science. Um, um, it's, it's hard to see how we could say that on the family resemblance concept. Okay, um, now to my um, um, again, it's not really a positive proposal, but it's it's more an attempt to to try to understand, um, you know, um, what 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 a good solution would look like. Um, and and I, I suggest um, the the so-called basic uh, predicate solution uh, or the paradigm solution, uh, and and that is the, um, the the idea that you know that you, you, that there may be one science out there, um, let's say physics, uh, which has a lot of the or you know which has has a lot of the features that we recognize as scientific, and. Um, Again, that doesn't need to be an actual science. Uh, it could be uh, something more abstract. So there's a list of features which we consider to be uh, important for for something to, so for an activity to be scientific. Um, and then um, um, we can we can say that you know that our particular science, let's say biology, um, if it shares a feature with this with this basic predicate or this paradigm. Um, then, or you know, at least one. Then that that could be enough for the, for that um, activity to be recognized as a science. But there, but there, but there is something you know that we can we can point to and say um, you know this is the reason why uh, this is a science or it's not. Um, uh, on, on this solution, you, um, like on the family concept, so that's 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 why it's um, um, that why it also should have some appeal for people who like family resemblance. That um, um, it need not be the case, you know, that uh, any of the sciences we're looking at have any, you know, have anything in common. As long as they have something in common with that basic predicate, then that's um, that would be justification enough for us calling those um, sciences uh, members of the science kind. Yeah, um, but again, yeah. So, so um, this is something that that I don't consider, you know, you know, very central for. Um, you know, for some of the arguments I'm making in the book. Um, uh, so, so the main the, the main focus is, of course, theoretical virtues in science. Um, and uh, now, but but given this, you know, this idea of of the basic predicate solution, that if if you say something true about, say, physics, um, and you you know you successfully identify the virtue uh, of physical theories, um, then if if physics is a science and that's un, uh, that's uncontroversial, right? Then then you automatically will have said something about about science um, about that you know that, that 
or, or about you know virtues that, that you know that are important in science. Um, Right, right, right. I mean, that, I, I think that was what sort of prompted my question was was that obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but it, it would seem that there's certainly room for a, um, a, a, you might call it a virtue theoretic argument uh, for what is a science and what isn't. Um, you know, again, maybe it's family resemblance or not, but you know, where, you know, par if you want to put it this way, paradigms have these qualities uh, these these theoretical virtues and and you know if you have these theoretical virtues, uh, that's that's a good sign that that you are a science or something like that. Uh, in, in other words, the the virtues play it, it seemed to me play a role not just in the realism anti realism debate within the domain of scientific theories, but it also appears to play some sort of a role in the demarcation problem itself. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's get you know I want to get to your your four what you call your virtuous arguments um, I like that title um, so you know the the core one uh, seems to be the idea that a, a very virtuous theory one that one that exhibits you know more of the standard theoretical virtues is is more likely to be true right um, and that of course is is the the paradigm realist claim about theories that they that they do aim to be true rather than merely empirically adequate. Um, and then you have a series of other uh, uh, sort of sub-arguments, I suppose, or supporting arguments um, that various theoretical virtues um, are indeed um, uh, uh, truth-conducive, you know, or at least have epistemic elements to them. They're not entirely pragmatic. Um, so before we get into each of, or at least a number of those arguments, maybe we should say something about uh, what are the theoretical virtues that we are concerned with? Um, uh, you know, the, the list is usually things like simplicity or not being ad hoc uh, or being unifying in some way. Um, could you could you say a bit about you know what the theoretical virtues are and how you how you define them? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm not. You know, extremely creative in drawing up the list. Um, so I'm bas I basically use um, uh, the, the list that was drawn up by by Kuhn, Thomas Kuhn, in um, in his favorite, uh, sorry, in his uh, famous article about theory choice. And um, um, so, so he mentions five uh, virtues. I add a couple, um, but but yeah, I, I consider those to be not extremely controversial. Um, so there, there may be other virtues as well, but. Um, you could consider those maybe as some kind of minimal set of, of theoretical virtues. So the first one um, is, of course, empirical accuracy. So um, a theory's claims about the observable phenomena ought to be true. Um, um, and I, yeah, I, I um, talk about empirical accuracy in the, in the first chapter. There's, of course, also empirical adequacy um, as defined by Basrin Frasen, which is much more far-reaching. So um, the truth of a theory uh, about um, of 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 uh, a theory's observable claims of um, the past, present, and future. Then there's consistency. Um, so consistency um, for yeah, Kuhn discusses that, that as one virtue, but um, that can be subdivided, of course, in, into internal and external vir um, cons consistency. So internal consistency is just. Um, the requirement that um, a theory ought not to say uh, P and not P, or you ought not to be able to derive uh, contradictions from your theory. Um, and then is also, yeah, the, the exter external consistency would be um, that a theory ought not to be um, uh, inconsistent with some of our background theories that uh, presumably have some support, empirical support. Um, it's important to note uh, at this point already that that um, so we're not talking about necessary conditions, obviously, uh, that a theory uh, has got to have, but as vir uh, of, of virtues. Um, so we're talking about um, uh, things that would be good for a theory to have uh, properties um, of, of theories. Um, so there are these cases like uh, the Bohr model of the atom, and that's that's a bit, yeah, that's controversial. Some people have claimed um, that it's that, that, that an inconsistency is involved there. Um, there's there's some discussion about that, whether that's actually the case. But um, I take it that there are you know there are examples where um, you know we have inconsistencies, and that's um, that's something that 
sciences you are probably not happy about and try to 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 um to fix but that's it's it's not the case that you you won't find any scientific theories that are um inconsistent i think um particularly when it comes to external consistency that that makes a lot of sense when you propose a new theory and uh it, you know it, it can happen that there you know you get an inconsistency with the background knowledge for example when quantum mechanics or was proposed that was that seemed inconsistent with um you know classical mechanics um so that, that does happen um not necessarily bad. Um, a third virtue is uh, scope or unifying power. Um, so a theory is capacity to unify uh, the phenomena. And um, I like to distinguish between, on the one hand, um, you know, um, the, the, the number of phenomena captured by a theory. Uh, so you could call that scope. Um, and unifying power um, could be something more. It could, could really be, um, you know, getting uh, at the structure uh, at the structure of things, for example, um, be before Newton's theory, people thought the the, the uh, heavenly motions or the planetary motions there was a different kind of motion uh, from the motion that we have here on Earth, a terrestrial motion. Um, Newton unified uh, these phenomena um, at a deeper level, so that would be um, yeah. So, so that would be an example for unifying power. Um, and you, and of course, you can have scope. You can explain a lot of phenomena without having unifying uh, power and vice versa fruitfulness um usually it's um construed in terms of a theory's um, um novel success or a theory making predictions and us uh, then confirming these predictions or discovering the phenomena that are predicted by the theory um and there are also other senses of fruitfulness uh, that don't play so much a, a role in the realism debate um but it's actually also part of the book um so so another example um, would be, um, you know, a fruitful research program, and Lakatosh um, is associated with that idea, of course, um, but also Ernie McMullen. But um, we're probably going to get to talk about that a bit later. Um, Testability—that's, um, yeah, uh, many people's favorite, or at least scientists' favorites. Uh, so the idea that uh, a theory has to um, be, you know, it has to be po possible to prove the theory wrong. Um, the team has to make predictions not only about not not only about future events, but also you know uh, something that we know already. Um, and um, it needs to be possible to you know that the theory can turn out wrong on the basis of these observations. Um, and that seems also um, a prerequisite for the theory receiving empirical support of the the, the phenomena that it actually accommodates. Um, you know that it could also uh, turn. Could have been could have turned out wrong on the base if if, if the experimental results had been uh, different than the theory predicted. Um, and lastly, and lastly, um, yeah, I um, also add non-ad hocness. So that's something that uh, I think has been neglected a little bit uh, in recent debates uh, in in the real in the in the realism debate in particular. Um, that has and actually that played a big role in the. Uh, in the 60s up till the 80s, um, between Popper, Lakatosh, um, and Kuhn to some extent. Um, uh, Feierabend also can also be mentioned here. Um, so, so, so the so the idea that theory shouldn't um, explain the phenomena in ad hoc fashion, uh, or you shouldn't introduce ad, uh, ad hoc um, hypotheses that that save your your theory from refutation when you know when there is a mismatch. Yeah. So, so these are the, the virtues that I take to be, you know, minimal a minimal set of virtues for a good scientific theory. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good. So, uh, but you're, you're, you know, as you, you know, proceed in the book, the, the main, I would say what you call the, the core or central uh, argument uh, for realism is what you call the no virtue coincidence argument. Um, and you introduce it in the context of what is often called the pessimistic meta-induction, right? Which is, you know, against against realism, which is just the idea, 
you know, in a word that uh, scientific theories come and go. You know, we've 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 often believed theories that turn out to be false. You know, we thought they were true; they turn out to be false. This is the history of science. It's a big heap of you know of of theories that we've discarded, um, and there's no reason to think that the theories that we have now are you know, are, are not going to be subject to the same fate, right? That, that eventually these theories that we are now, that we now think, uh, you know, are, or, or that realists will say are true, it turns out that we're not. And so the, you know, the conclusion for the anti-realists is, you know, we should be a bit more epistemically conservative and not claim that our theories are true, and just sort of step back from that more that to a more uh, conservative claim, and just say, well, you know, as long as they're empirically adequate in some way, or uh, then that's that's good enough, right? So that's that's the pessimistic meta induction, and it, and it plays a you know an enormous role in the in the realist anti-realist debate. Um, and there's you know new versions of it that you that you mention there. Um, uh, in terms of the base rate fallacy problem and so forth, um, could you could so could you say a bit about that um, issue between the realists and anti-realists, and then your no virtue coincidence argument? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the pessimistic meta induction has played a huge role in the in the real. In, in the recent realism debate, and that's been uh, shaped very much by by the work of Larry Lawden, uh, but also Silos. Um, so, so yeah, um, as you mentioned already, so, so there, there are these uh, past uh, theories um, that uh, allegedly had some success, um, but uh, nevertheless turned out to be um, false. Um, and that is taken to be evidence against the realist no miracles argument, uh, namely the idea that it would be a miracle if uh, our theories and our science were as successful as they are and not be true. Um, so some people, um, yeah, have, you know, could, um, read the pessimistic induction really as an induction about the, f um, way, way infer the falsities of our current theories. And that's something that I think is, is not quite right. Um, um, I, I think, and then that's a point made by Silos, but also Lyons, uh, more recently, maybe, um, and, 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 uh, um, Sazi said, Actually, um, this is, looks more like a modus tollens, where um, you, you you say that uh, actually uh, success is not an indicator of of truth, right? So so you, you you try to pull those two properties apart with that um, induction. It's not not so much um, you know saying that actually um, our current theories are false. It's, it's just to say that we don't have grounds. Um, to believe that our uh, the, the success of our current um, theories gives us reason to believe in their truth. Okay, and um, a lot of the debate has focused now on the, this so-called divided emperor move, um, where you um, we try to identify elements in past theories that were successful that were carried over to current theories. Um, and if you can do that, then you can you know you can show that these true elements they were retained, then um, yeah, you have some continu you have some continuity that you need to have, you know for 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 your realism um and you can still hold on to the the no miracle um argument and and the explanation of the success of science because already the success of the these apparently false theories in the past was explained by um the true elements and there's yeah so there's 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 quite some debate about you know the particular theories um um so has this particular theory in the past uh, that you know that was that ter turned out false but was successful um does it have true elements does it not or approximately true at least um and people are divided over this um but yeah i, th I think i think the balance um uh, of course, uh, is in the realist's favor, as you, as you might have guessed. But, anyways, um, um, so I I, um, I step back a little bit from this debate and ask, okay, what what would actually be be shown if um, we actually could, you know, if if, if somebody would could 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 convincingly demonstrate convincingly demonstrate that there are there is a theory that's false and had success. 
Um, I think that wouldn't necessarily undermine the numericals argument. Um, so um, I, th I think that the right way to think of the numericals argument is, is some kind of probabilistic argument that makes it more likely that the theory is true, given that it's successful. Um, and then, you know, having, you know, presenting a couple of examples that, that won't uh, win the argument, uh, I think. Um, but an even stronger, uh, even uh, more severe problem that um, I focus on in, in this problem is um, is the the so-called base rate fallacy. Yeah. So, so Magnus and Callender uh, they they have pointed out and that they they build on work by um, uh, by Colin Housen um, that. Um, so, so that that um, you know that the, the posterior probability, of course, depends on on the prior probability of a theory being true, and we don't really have any access to that prior probability, or um, we can just set that uh, prior probability as we please, and then there's not not really any um, point in hacking about these, uh, um, you know, about the the question of you know whether success uh, theory success is a is a, is a good indicator for its truth um, because um, it can actually even you know even if you have a even if that were a good indicator if the the base rate of uh, true theories is actually very low um, then you have a problem as a realist so there's this medical example that is often being mentioned so imagine you have a test a medical test and um, um, the test as a so, so there's a low false positive uh, rate, so, so it has a very low probability of giving you a positive uh, test result if there's no disease, um, and it has a high probability of um, you know indicating positive result when there's actually disease in the patient. Um, but if the incidence of the disease is very low, if you say have uh, um, only one sick patient in a population of uh, a thousand uh, subjects, um, and if you say have a um, false positive rate of um, of five percent, um, then the probability of actually having the the disease when tested positive is not as many people would would guess uh, ninety five percent, but rather very low. It would be um, about two percent. Um, yeah. So in in, in the realism deba debate, something analogous holds, um, and Marx and Paul, um, and and Kellner point out. Um, uh, that's problematic because we have no way of accessing these prior probabilities, or um, we, we are free to set them as as we wish, uh, depending on you know whether you're Bayesian or a frequentist. Uh, but that's yeah, that's that's secondary. Yeah, so that's that's a problem, um, and I try to engage with that problem. So it's a it's a it's a difficult problem, um, um, but um, so so what I make use of in this chapter is. In, in, in the book is an insight developed by John Ehrman. So um, if you have a crime happening um, and uh, you have, um, you know, uh, witnesses reporting that crime, um, oh, it's, yeah, and you have witnesses reporting that crime, these, these witnesses are independent. And as the, the, the number of, of witnesses increases, if the, the witnesses are only uh, are only relatively reliable, so if the if the false positive rate of those witnesses reporting a, a crime is uh, lower than uh, the, the the true positive rate, so the false positive so the true positive rate could be lower than fifty percent. But as long as that condition holds and the number of witnesses goes towards infinity, then then your prior probability of um of of the you know the crime actually occurring could could go to zero and um, you could still, you know, you know, what you still get is that um, um, that the crime happened. Um, and of course, we, we don't have a, a, you know, as nice a situation like that in science. Um, uh, the number of scientists is limited. Um, so, you know, that there's, there's, of course, a limit uh, to the pull of this, this kind of argument as when you apply it when you apply it to the sciences, so the so the idea is that um, analogously, that um, the more um, relatively reliable scientists embrace a theory on the on the on the basis of of its virtues, um, the the more likely um, that the theory will be true, uh, regardless 
how low the uh, prior probability is. Um, but yeah, or so, so the, the more scientists embrace them, the you know the lower the, the prior probability can be, uh, and and um, it can still be the case that the posterior probability is is uh, fairly high above above fifty uh, percent. Um, yeah, so so that's that's the the rough idea. Um, so the but the the no virtue coincidence, could you? That's right. Um, yeah, that's that's an important part. Um, so um, I I used the, the Kuhnian framework of, of theory choice uh, in that argument, and um, Kuhn assumes that or Kuhn Kuhn claims that scientists have different um, order preferences when it comes to the virtues, right? So. Um, uh, some people, some some scientists will prefer, for example, simplicity. Some um, will prefer unifying power. You know, when a, when they when they judge whether the theory is true or not. Um, um, and um, and there might be conflicts, but you know, they, 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 so there might be theories that have some virtues but not others. Um, that's that's also something that uh, that he says, and, and I think both of both of these assumptions are um, you know very plausible. Um, and uh, but if if you have that, then um, then you can still have um, convergence of the choices of of those scient of, of of scientists and their their preference. Uh, you can still have convergence of the choices of scientists and and a convergence on on one theory. If if you have a theory that has all the virtues, right? So if you prefer simplicity, uh, and I prefer uh, unifying power, again, it doesn't mean that you know these are the only criteria used, but uh, we have, you know, we have this this order preference, um, and um, a theory has all the virtues. Then we will end up choosing the same theory, right? Because um, that theory, in contrast to, you know, um, other theories, will have all the virtues. So that's that's something another assumption. So um, on the Kuhnian framework, um, it's it's assumed that you know you have you have these these conflicts between between these virtues. Often that you know some theories have. Some virtues, but not, um, but others, yeah. Other some some theories have some virtues and others have other virtues, but you um, um, often don't get these these um, convergences on of virtues in one theory. But if yeah, if so, so my point is that if if you do, then that um, gives you good reasons to think that uh, the the theory is is correct, um, um, because then it's likely that you know. Um, relatively reliable scientists will converge in their choices on on this theory. Okay, so let me just um, so you you will I, this is very a, a very simplistic way of of putting it, and so the reason why I'll I'll say it is is so that you can push back and tell me where what you say differs. Uh, but it sounds like to some extent uh, it's an argument that. The greater the consensus of scientists around a theory, the more likely it is to be true. So, you know, global warming is a perfect example nowadays, right? I mean, there's all this fight about 95% or 97% of scientists doing climate science, you know, converge. You know, they may not have the same model, but they all agree on the basis of different sources of evidence different that that it's happening right and so this is you know this is a, a huge actual argument uh that is used for uh arguing that uh you know there's this great consensus about global warming we should believe that you know global warming is actually happening um so is how how would you say that your no virtue coincidence you know argument sort of differs from a you know very crude thing that just says well if if there's more consensus consensus about a theory, then that's more likely to be true. Mm -hmm. no, that's that's an interesting example. Yeah, I like that. Um, um, and of course, an example um, the the subjects we're talking about must be reliable, right? Uh, so <laughs> it's not enough for you know some climate uh, deniers to to. Um, Climate change deniers to converge on the idea that there is no climate change. I mean, that wouldn't be enough. Um, so yeah, in that in that sense, it's uh, it's similar. But um, um, I mean, obviously, it's implicit in the realism debate, right? That the, the theory, the theories that we have, uh, or the, the theories that we 
that the theories that sorry that the realist wants to be realist about uh, our current best theories that they are embraced by uh, by the majority of the scientific community um, but it hasn't played you know a very prominent role um, that kind of convergence and in, in in the realism debate and it hasn't been recognized that 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 could you know could be um, a solution to uh, the space problem of course not you know not a complete solution but um, um, or you know, it's it's not a knockdown argument, but it um, but it certainly uh, prompts um, realists and realists to um, you know to, to think hard about um, about about these um, you know what what you can call error rates. Um, um, so so what you know what what would be the what would be reasonable error rates uh, for 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 scientists in uh, judging these these virtues rather than worrying too much about uh, about the priors. Um, um yeah so 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 that's that's the option of um of my chapter that we can actually have a you know rational debate after all about these uh, about these error rates I see. okay yeah so good good um so let's see i don't i want to i mean so let, let me let's go to novel predictive success i mean again that's that's a that's that particular virtue that, you know, I have a theory or, you know, theory A is able to make this, you know, uh, surprising prediction. I mean, we like surprising predictions, but that's not essential to the idea that you make some prediction about some new phenomenon and it turns out to be, uh, it turns out to come out as you expect, right? I won't say it comes out true, it's just successful in some way. Um, and that has been a very important player in this debate as well. The idea that a better theory and, and for a realist, a truer theory is one that will make these novel predictions and they, they will come out true. Um, can you, you, you have an interesting take on this. I mean, you don't, yeah, um, you don't think that realists should, should rely on this feature of novel predictive success to support their view. Um, so, could you could you say something about that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, there are various versions of novel success, um, and the most straightforward version is, of course, you know, the, the, the temporal version, where, as you already said, that a, you know, a theory makes a prediction, um, and later on we discovered. Or we, you know, we discovered a phenomenon predicted by the theory, um, and that has been criticized quite effectively, I think, and many people appreciate that by um, John Worrell in particular, but also others. Um, and and he, so he has two criticisms. So one criticism is that um, there there seems to be no rational for why the mere time uh, order of you know proposing a theory and you know. Um, um, gathering the, the relevant evidence, why the mere time order should matter um, to us, um, believing that we get more confirmation from a successful, successful prediction than from an accommodation. Um, and the other point he makes is um, that's motivated by historical examples. Um, so um, the, the more, probably most famous one is um, his discussion of um, for, uh, the, the prediction by Fresnel's uh, wave theory of light of the uh, so-called bright spot. Um, and as Worrell points out, well, if, when you look actually at um, some of the historical material in particular, um, at, a, at a report of um, um, a committee of the French Academy assessing the, the theory, um, that novel prediction gets very little attention, even though it's, it seems to be one of the most um, astounding Novel successful predictions that that we find in the in the history of science because it was also actually derived by 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 uh, somebody else um, Poisson. It's also known as the Poisson white spot or bright spot, um, um, and you know, and, and he derived in order to to prove that the theory was actually um, somewhat absurd uh, because it had this had this consequence and it, and it was discovered. And but that didn't seem to uh, play such a big role. Um, in the assessment of the theory, um, so so in, instead the committee focused more on phenomena that were already known, namely straight edge um, diffraction patterns, where the theory had a very you know good story to tell. Um, there are other examples: Mendeleev's um, successful prediction of chemical new chemical elements, 
um, and for example, also Einstein's um, prediction of light bending that was um, confirmed by Eddington and others in uh, 1919. Um, so, so there's historical evidence, right, that, that scientists don't seem to care uh, so much more about novel success. Um, um, in fact, sometimes, so some people have argued they actually care more about um, the explanation of already known phenomena, like uh, in Einstein's case, Brush, uh, the historian Brush, points out that um, actually um, Einstein received much more credit for successfully explaining the advance of Mercury's perihelion that was known for for decades and that, that posed a major problem for Newtonian mechanics. Or um, yeah, so that, that was a big anomaly at least for for the for the theory. Um, yeah, um, and then, so, so here's this idea of use number of success, and he, he claims to make sense of these cases. Um, so um, the, the idea is that um, if we don't use evidence in the construction of theories, um, and we can derive these, um, we can do, derive the evidence from the theory nevertheless, then that's, um, that should count as novel, regardless of whether the phenomenon was already known when the theory was designed. Um, in the book, I point out that you know there's actually a strong and a weak version um, of this, and I think that the weak version doesn't really fly. So, um, um, because it seems to make the, the confirmation of theory um, contingent on 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 you know on the on the action of scientists that might be totally obscure to the scientific scientific community, right? If whether somebody used a piece of evidence or not in the construction of the theory, um, but actually he himself has this other um, version. That that often gets yeah that that he presents alongside with a weak weak version without really distinguishing them, and um, um, it's that strong version is about uh, basically parameter fixing. So, so if you have three parameters in a theory, then um, if you if you fix a free parameter uh, in order to accommodate uh, a piece of evidence, then that's not really uh, support for the theory. Um, and there are other other versions of of that um, one by Hitch, Hitchcock and uh, Sober, um, who claim that uh, you know the, you get you have this relationship between um, the the number of free parameters in your theory and uh, a theory's predictive success, um, uh, which I think um, may hold you know in the in the context of of, of data models, but it's hard to you know, really extrapolate that. Um, um, you know, to higher level theories, which we're actually interested in the realism debate, um, and so so the rationale has to do with a um, with the fact that sometimes you have noise in the data, right? And if you have a um, if you, if you overfit your model um, to to the data that contains noise, then obviously it won't be as predictive as a as a theory that has less para para parameter fixed to um, to this particular data set. Um, and there are other other attempts to to motivate, um, you know, our intuition that novel success is really impressive, um, <laughs> um, and I discussed those. So, so the, yeah, the um, so that the, there's, there's one having to do with uh, coin flipping uh, and you know different scientists making predictions about the outcome of of those of those tosses. Um, I'm not sure we need to go into details here, but um, um, yeah, I, I, I end up concluding that none of these, you know, rationales that have been offered are, are very compelling. Um, and also discuss in some detail um, the Mendeleev case again, uh, the prediction, the successful prediction of of non of of new chemical elements. Um, and it seems that so, so an interesting thing that happened there was that actually he also predicted. Um, that some of the, the 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 weights or some of the information known about and the chemical elements at that time or what people thought they knew was actually uh, incorrect. So, for example, he predicted that um, the weight of uranium um, should be two hundred around two hundred forty instead of one hundred and twenty, uh, and he was right about that. So uh, I call that a contraprediction. Um, uh, so that's that's something that that's been um, also pointed out by Brush, uh, the historian. Um, and yeah, I take I take that to be so some evidence for what I call symptomatic predictivism, um, namely the idea that there um, that the predictions can have some some epistemic weight when they reveal 
um, the actuality of a certain uh, theoretical property, namely explanatory, explanatory coherence, um, which you arguably had in the in the periodic table by Mendeleev. So um, interestingly, before Mendeleev, um, uh, there never was, you know, a coherent uh, table of all the chemical elements that, you know, um, would outline their properties. Um, um, and um, yeah, major reason where, you know, where these, I think these these chemical elements that um, where where people had wrong information about them and that, and, and Mendeleev, he elevated this, this criterion of weight, um, 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 you know, to, to principle and, and, um, I mean, that's that's not the only principle he used. Um, there's other important information about the, the properties of chemical elements that went into, into the table. Um, but but he used you know this this criterion pretty much coherently, and and then decided that um, uh, the weights should be corrected, um, the weights and some of the properties of of, of the chemical elements. Um, so yeah, so, so I have this you know I have this um, this. Yeah, so, so I, I don't think there's, you know, an intrinsic reason why um, novel success should count more. And in, in fact, yeah, so so Mendeleev himself, he mentioned that um, that the, the, you know, what 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 he particularly emphasized was that the the, the table gives you very good reasons for um, uh, think for 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 believing that a certain element ought to have certain properties, and that's that's actually what's uh, what's important, whether the um, you know, whether the evidence is novel or not is, I think, um, yeah, secondary. Right. Okay. That's good. Um, well, there's, there's a lot more to, to discuss and I'm sort of, uh, we, we're, we're, we don't have that much time to go. So just to, just to, you know, at the, so at the, toward the end of the book, you, um, you address what, what you call the negative view, which is just the idea that all these theoretical virtues aren't epistemic at all, of course. Um, they're just, they're merely pragmatic. You know, they help us manipulate things and, and coordinate our behavior or whatever. Um, and you go through a number of different actual examples of, of scientists choosing, making choices uh, that you, you, you argue show that this negative view is false, that they are making these choices on the basis of these virtues um, and that uh, the role that the, that the virtues are playing is in fact an epistemic one for these scientists in their actual choices. Um, we're, we're not going to have time to obviously to go through all of these different cases, but maybe you could just say you know quickly one, one of them maybe Watson and Crick, or you know that's that's fairly, you know that's that's fairly wide, widely known, and so maybe that might be a, a good one. You know Watson and Crick and the, and the structure of the of DNA molecules. Yeah, very good. So um, so Crick and Watson they they didn't produce any uh, evidence themselves uh, about you know the structure of the DNA. Um, so that was mostly provided by um, by by Franklin. Uh, at the King's College in London, um, and they and 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 Franklin, she produced um, you know several pieces of evidence, and one of these um, seemed to indicate actually an asymmetric structure, which was inconsistent with the helix, and and she was actually pretty keen on that, uh, and she developed tried to develop um, a model that would accommodate both uh, that um, that picture, um, uh, but also you know a picture which. Very much seemed to support uh, a helical structure, which uh, Crick and Watson um, uh, focused on, and, and they had good reasons to focus on that because there there is this theory uh, of helical diffract, uh, diff diffraction that um, that tells you, that, you know what kind of pattern you ought to get if the underlying structure is a helix, namely this this X rate, sorry this this X shaped uh, pattern that you could observe in this this very famous. Um, Photo uh, fifty-one, I think it's called number fifty-one. Um, so, so you had so you had a situation of conflicting evidence. So that's that's um, a common theme for all of these cases that I discuss. Um, and then you have some scientists, um, you know, kind of um, abiding by the evidence, trying to make sense of all the evidence that they have. Um, and then you have uh, some scientists that. In these cases, interestingly, ended up you know making the the the, the groundbreaking discoveries. So these are not 
um, you know, some unimportant cases. They're actually, you know, super essential and um, very important cases for the development of science and cases which we actually, um, you know, um, um, often present as some of the greatest successes of science. Um, and in this particular example, then, uh, Crick and Watson, so they, on, the, on the basis of the, the theory that they had there, um, that gave them good reasons to believe uh, in the helical structure. They um, they, they neglected um, that apparently counter evidence, um, and we can make sense of that. Um, I argue by um, presuming that the theoretical virtues um, that some of these you know theories had, um, for example, in in this case, um, the, the double helix provided a very nice. Uh, um, replication mechanism. Um, so you could argue that you know that's um, you know that, that the virtue of it had a virtue of fertility, <clears throat> or at least potential fertility. Um, it was pretty simple and so on. Um, and um, so 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 if if you if you presume that they if these virtues are uh, epistemic, then you can make sense of the the choices that were made by Crick and Watson, namely to believe in to, to ignore this, this this apparently negative evidence, right? Um, um, and again, they didn't have they didn't have very good experimental reasons for it, uh, for for saying okay, this is bad evidence. Um, they, you know, again, they didn't produce any kind of evidence themselves. They had to rely on Franklin, but they um, but they were pretty dismissive about this kind of evidence uh, for the reasons that I mentioned. Um, so so my argument then is um, well, if these virtues are not epistemic, then it seemed to be extremely, it, it, it seemed to be just methodologically wrong for them to, you know, just throw out part of the evidence. Um, it's not if, if, if the virtues are epistemic and they tell you something about the truth content of the, of these theories. So it's, it's a kind of dilemma that I draw up there in, in favor for the, um, for the, um, uh, theoretical virtues being epistemic. Um, yeah. And, and of course, again, um, and that's something that I stress throughout the book, and that's um, that's something that hasn't been, I think, um, um, discussed at all. Is that the possibility that the possibility that theory, theoretical virtues um, can be relatively truth conducive? Right? They don't need to guarantee the truth of theories. Uh, they can still be epistemic, um, and um, I, I think that's plausible in these cases. Last question: What what is <laughs> what is on the horizon for you? Are you are you following up this book, or are you going in a different direction? What what are you working on now? I'm, uh, yeah, in the, in the middle of going in a different direction. Um, so I have a project that's been running a couple of years already, um, and that's that's on intuitions in in, in uh, science and philosophy, um, and that's. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of experimental philosophy that we're doing, actually. Um, so we're uh, interested in the so-called expertise uh, defense um, that some people have um, suggested in response to some of the experimental results that um, seem to show that you know our judgments and thought experiments are what sometimes people call intuitions, but many other people prefer to call just case judgments, including Edomashri, for example. Um, so, so that these judgments are unreliable because they're subject to order effects and so on. And we, um, we um, in the project, we focus on expertise defense and, and, and try to, um, yeah, uh, approach it empirically. So, so what is philosophical expertise? Um, you know, what would it mean for, um, for you know, these judgments and these thought experiments? What kinds of skills would you, would you, uh, would you need to have? Um, and, and another sub-project, Focus on uh, focuses on linguistic intuitions, where also just like in philosophy, um, 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 linguistic intuitions are used as more specifically syntactic intuitions are used as evidence for building grammars. Um, how is that possible? Um, um, so that's that's the that's the leading question of the project. And we also have one on uh, thought experiments in physics, um, and we ask, you know, is um, is, is physics is our thought experience in physics really so different from our thought experience in philosophy? If they're not, then it seems that there there's there's some some good grounds for the expertise to be to be run in both in in both fields. 
yeah, so that's that, that's what I'm working on currently, um, and also a bit on, on scientific explanation. <laughs> so yeah, I, I have several issues, several projects uh, running. Very good. Well, I I look forward to to reading about or or um, yeah, seeing what the fruits of those uh, various projects yeah, are. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think we we're we're out of time at the moment. So I just want to say thank you again for taking the time to talk with New Books and Philosophy. Yeah, thank I've you. Enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Okay. Thank. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Samuel Schindler, Associate Professor of Philosophy of Science at Aarhus University in Denmark. We've been talking about his new book, Theoretical Virtues in Science, Uncovering Reality Through Theory, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you again for listening. Bye-bye.